If you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to Philippians chapter 2. Let me read to you this two verses of Scripture and then let's pray. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much that you have saved us by grace through faith. And Father, we thank you that you have called us to walk in a manner that's worthy of Jesus Christ our Lord, of the calling with which we have been called in him. We thank you, Father, that grace and salvation are abundantly ours because of his shed blood and because of your great and glorious plan of salvation. Father, open up our eyes this morning that we might see things that we have not seen. Open up our ears that we might hear the word in all of its truth and fullness. And deal with our hearts, Lord, that we might truly understand that this might be implanted in our hearts to the glory and honor of Christ as we do what you have called us to do, as we obey, as we abide, as we seek your face. Lord, thank you for the promise that you are here among us this day. Thank you, Father, for your Holy Spirit that bears witness with our spirits, even as we are here, that we are your children, that we are your saints called to do your will. Father, we ask then that Jesus Christ alone be glorified and his name exalted. For we pray in it in his name. Amen. <clears throat> Let's just review for a moment what Paul did when he wrote this letter to the church at Philippi. There were several themes that were abundantly obvious through this. And he wrote this letter while he was imprisoned in Rome under house arrest. And more than likely, a fellow by the name of Epaphroditus is the one who is referred to in chapter 3, who took the letter to the church at Philippi as an encouragement. And he kind of promised them, Timothy is likely to follow along later. But he was trying to encourage them to do something that we're going to talk about this morning as summarized in this verse of scripture we just quoted in chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. And in particular, I want us to understand what it is when... Paul exhorted the church to work out their salvation with fear and trembling, for it was God who's at work in them to will and to work for his good pleasure. It's always a problem sometimes when we start talking about the word work in the Christian life. People get a little sidetracked, and they think we're talking about working for our salvation. And that has nothing whatsoever to do for it, because it's nothing at all about working out a working for our salvation, but it's working out our salvation that we'll talk about this morning. But I think in order to better understand it, we need to understand some of the general themes that, uh, that Paul was talking about to the church at Philippi. First of all, he appealed to them to be unified, to have unity, and to humble themselves, to be like Christ. He appealed to them about warnings on legalism that they needed to be aware of that kind of thing. That was especially in chapter uh, 2, verses 2 through 21, or 3, verses 2 to 21. And he made commendations to them for their good stewardship. Because you remember, the church at Philippi was one of those churches that really provided financial support to Paul and his ministry, even when he was in prison. 
And then also, there is an overarching theme that I think comes forth. And it, this is, I'm not a theologian, not by any stretch of the imagination, but I think as I read through Philippians, I come to a conclusion that the overarching theme is this. It's found in verse 3 of chapter 3, verse 8. It says simply, the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ. The surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ. And this working on our salvation with fear and trembling has much to do with that. Let's look for just a moment as we look at some verses coming from, uh, uh, coming from Philippians. Starting in verse 1, uh, pardon, starting in chapter 1, verse 6, I'll get it out of my mouth sooner or later. He says this, I am confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. And that's a harmony verse with what we were reflecting on in chapter 2, verses uh, 12 and 13. Because not only is it God at work in us to will and to work for his good pleasure, but he's going to perfect it. It's him who will do the very thing that began a good work in us. He will bring it to fruition. He will bring it to completion in the day when Jesus Christ comes and cleans the church as his own. Now, this is our hope, if you will. A great hope, because that's sanctification we're talking about. And that sanctification will be made complete when we see him face to face. And so this kind of encourages them. It's the the hope of their sanctification. Also, it's one other thing. It is the promise that what God has started in us, he will complete. He will bring to perfection. He will have us stand before him, it says in Ephesians, holy and blameless. Holy and blameless. Not because of what we've done, but what he has done through Jesus Christ our Lord. So therefore, that is an assurance that what God has started when he put his Holy Spirit and implanted it in our hearts, and then he has begun the process of sanctification, he will bring to full completion upon that day when we stand before him and are glorified as members of the church, the bride of Christ. What a glorious thing to think about. Also, let's look again at another recurring theme in verses 9 through 11. Paul's prayer to the church. And he prayed this, And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent and order to be, Sincere and blameless unto the day of Christ, having been filled with a fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. What a glorious prayer. As Paul has a tendency of always praying, a glorious prayer for the church. Here he does in Philippians. And he's praying that their love might increase and abound more and more in every way. So that... They might have real, true knowledge of the living God. Because that is the way that we truly get to know him. You're not going to get to know anyone, for that matter. Especially God, unless there's love. A love relationship is necessary for you to really know someone and to know them intimately. And so it is with God. And he's praying that they might increase, their love might increase and abound in true knowledge and understanding or discernment so that they might learn to apply the things 
that God has instructed us through his word and that we might bring glory and honor to his name, especially in that time when he comes to get us, he comes to claim unto himself his, his church. So we have this aspect of being sanctified and our salvation complete in every sense of the word. And Paul is praying for that in essence. Also, he's rejoicing in the knowledge that the gospel has been preached. And even though as a result of his imprisonment, it has been forwarded and preached, it has been advanced. And even then, people were working against Paul. And he says, yet, even though they were, it's still been done. Verse 12 of first chapter says, now, I want you, therefore, brethren, by the circumstances that my circumstances have turned out, for the greater progress of the gospel. In verse 15 he says, Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but also from goodwill. And then in verse 18 he summarizes saying, What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. So this is a, a theme that we find here Paul saying there are those who have other than the most pure motives about preaching the gospel. But the important thing is that the gospel is being preached. Then there is Paul's great dilemma. He said this, For to me, to, die, to live is Christ and to die is gain. That was his dilemma. He said, I have I've seen, I know what awaits me in Christ Jesus. And in this life hereafter, this is a glorious thing. I desire to know Christ in this way, face to face. But I know that my remaining behind is going to be a great value to you. And so I'm willing to do that, though I know that if I died, it is my gain. And what a glorious concept. And this was the thing that we find here in this particular uh, uh, chapter of, 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 uh, pardon me, of Philippians, as Paul is saying, for me... To live is Christ, but to die is gain. There's also another port we find in verse 27 of the first chapter, and he says this. Only comfort yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Of, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving, that's my emphasis, Together for the faith of the gospel. That you are standing firm in the faith, striving for the gospel. Striving. Key word. I want you to remember that. We're going to talk about it later. And then also in verse 29, he says this. And I consider this one of the toughest verses of the Bible, along with Romans 8.28. It says simply, For you, for to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. We like the believe part. The suffering part is not so appealing, is it? And I mentioned during the first service, and I'll mention during this one, that when we think about what our society is today, I mean, we have a great privilege to gather here freely this morning and worship God. What an awesome thing it is. And we commemorate tomorrow the men and women who gave their lives in sacrifice for the country. The fact is, is that uh, we have a great privilege 
to be able to do this. But I'm convinced that there might come a day in my lifetime, but certainly I think in the lifetime of my children, that the church, the true church of Jesus Christ, is going to once again find persecution. And it's going to be done under the guise of political correctness. It's going to be done under the guise of making sure that you don't practice hate speech, as political correctness would call it, when you proclaim the full truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. How dare you say that homosexuality is a sin? It's not a sin. It's a lifestyle. It's an optional lifestyle, according to political correctness. But the fact of the matter is, according to the word of God, it is a sin. And it comes to the point, I'm sure, that it will come a time when preachers or teachers in the Christian faith proclaim the fullness and truth of God's word. They're going to get persecuted. It's already happened in Canada. There is a pastor in particular, I think out in, uh, in British Columbia, who has in- incurred the wrath of the government saying that uh, he's been guilty of hate speech because he preached that homosexuality was a sin. And a consequence, he's been fined. Now, the court, it has not been adjudicated to my knowledge. But the fact is that, that the suit has been brought. And it's just because of political correctness that it was done. So I say that we're coming to a time, I think, when we might find that um, we're going to be persecuted once more. So it will not only be our privilege to, be be to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Then in chapter 2, beginning with verse 1 and 2, Paul mentions four hypothetical uh, statements that are the basis of his appeal to the Romans. And it's like this. When it's a hypothetical one, he actually answers it because he says, therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, and it's like the answer is, and you know there is. If there is any encouragement in Christ, and you know there is. If there is any consolation of love, and you know there is. If there is any fellowship of the Spirit, and you know good and well it is. If there is any affection and compassion, if any of these things make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. And what Paul is saying to them, these things we know are true about the encouragement in Christ and the consolidation of love and the fellowship of the Spirit, and the affection and compassion that should be evident in the Christian life. These things are true. We then ought to be thinking the same way, living harmoniously, having a oneness of mind. We ought to be focused upon Christ in every, as- in every aspect of the world. That is what we ought to be doing and sharing, um, uh, being in full card, sharing in this mindset of harmony and living together in a way that is bringing praise and, and, uh, and glory to Christ. Now, what he's talking about here, the essence is, throughout this whole thing, I know in my Bible, right, right there beginning in chapter 2, it says, be like Christ. That's the whole theme of that particular section of chapter 2 all the way through verse 19. Be like Christ. And what he's saying here in verse 3, he says, do nothing from selfishness. Or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. 
And then he says in verse 5, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Humility is really an antidote for rivalry and wrong attitudes. But humility is not easy to come by. And I think I would remind us that there's twice in the New Testament, once in the Old, where God says, like in 1 Peter 5, 5 and in James 4, 6, he says, God's opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. If we're going to consider others more important than ourselves, if we are to have that mindset, that oneness of mind and spirit, it's going to require humility. And it's not easy to give ourselves over to that. We are too proud at times. And so consequently, we don't have the grace that we need. And that's what it takes. It takes grace to be able to put up with people who are rather irritable. It takes grace to love the unlovely. It takes grace to do the things that we just simply cannot do. It takes the grace of God at operation in us. And we'll never get it by being proud. We'll never get it by asserting our own rights. We'll never get it by doing it our way. But we are going to get it and receive it when we humble ourselves and have our higher regard for others than we do ourselves. And this is why he's exhorting them to do this. As a matter of fact, there were two women in the church, obviously, as you read through the latter part of the chapter, who were obviously in disagreement. And there was some disharmony there. So the, the theme of unity occurs throughout all the Philippians and the importance of it. And this is what he's talking about. I mean, we can have all sorts of reasons of our own for being narrow-minded about some, someone's conduct or insisting upon our own rights or doing things the way we think it ought to be done and someone else doing it what they think we think is, might be the wrong way. But when we have that attitude of mind, it causes divisions in the church. It causes problems. We need grace in order for that to happen. Christ is the ultimate example of that kind of humility. And in the very next verse, verses, in beginning in verse 6, 7, and 8, he says this, talking about Christ, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. Being formed in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is the ultimate example of the humility of Christ. This is what Paul's trying to say to them. Be like this. Like Christ, who left his glory, who left his home in, in heaven at the right hand of God, who sacrificed and laid that aside. He didn't think it's something to be grasped and held on to, but rather he gave it up freely. And in so doing, he took upon himself the form of man. He emptied himself. There's a great theological discussion. It's available to us if we wanted to get, you could spend just a, met, a, a couple of messages on what it meant that Christ emptied himself. But I'm no theologian, but I'll say this. In my simple-minded analysis, I come to this conclusion, that he emptied himself of his glory. What glory he had with the Father in heaven. He emptied himself of that and took upon himself 
that of a bondservant. He became a bondservant in the form of man, flesh like you and I, fully man, yet fully God. He didn't empty himself of his divinity because he remained fully God. But he emptied himself of his glory. What privilege and glory he had in the presence of the Father. This one who we call King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And he took on the appearance of a man who obeyed to the point of dying, death, on a cruel Roman cross. What an awesome example of humility. This is our Christ, our Savior and Lord, who did this. And Paul is exhorting the church, be like Christ. Be like him. Humble yourself in the same way. The very next three verses of Scripture tell us a little bit about what happened to Christ as a consequence of his humility. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. So that's the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He humbled himself and became a bondservant in the form of man. He obeyed even to the point of death on the cross. And as a consequence, it says in Ephesians about the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in him when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. And every name that is named not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. That's what Christ accomplished when he humbled himself and became a man. This is how God exalted him. And this is our reminder that we will reign with him in that same way. Now let's talk about this particular verse of Scripture this morning in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence also, only I rather, but, also, but, now all, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work. For his good pleasure. What does he mean? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. I think you have to go back and understand the context of this. First of all, that he's talking as you have as we reviewed the this theme of humility, being like Christ, as we talked about the unity, the need for unity in the in the church, as we talked about in verse six of chapter one that it is God who is going to bring it about, that which he started in us, that good work which he began, he's going to bring about in the day of Christ. In light of that, then, Paul is saying, so then, my beloved, so then, dear friends, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who's working in you, both to will and work for his good pleasure. So let's look again at what some other verses of Scripture say and some other translations. If you look at the NIV, it says this. 
Therefore, my dear friends, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good pleasure. If you look at um, the, another couple of translations, the Holman, Holman Christian Standard Version, which I think is one of the better translations on the marketplace today, it says this, So then, my dear friends, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is, is working in you, enabling you both to will and to act for his good purpose. I've also put there the English Standard Version. It's almost identical in every way to the New American Standard. But the fact is, is this. Regardless of which translation you use, you come to the same conclusion. That we're talking about here uh, of working out our salvation. And what exactly does that mean? What doesn't it mean? First of all, let's look at the context of what he said here. Because Paul is preaching or teaching or speaking, if you will, through his letter to the church at Philippi, who are Christians. He's talking to Christians, to believers, to the saints in Christ Jesus. He's not talking to the lost. He's talking to believers. And so that's the context that we need to remember. He's saying nothing to those who are lost to work out their salvation, because they don't have it yet. He's talking to people who have been born again, and he's saying there's something you need to do with your salvation. You need to apply it. You need to make an effort regarding it. It needs to become a part of your very way of living, if you will. But it has nothing whatsoever to do with working on our salvation. I would remind you that that verse of Scripture that we have on the screen, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. I had in our small group about two months ago, a lady bring me a brochure. And it was interesting because uh, it was uh, by the Catholic Church. And it was called, or entitled, It Takes More Than Faith. And in that brochure, it was trying to tell the story that there needed to be works. Not just faith, but works. You had to have, faith was important, necessary, but works were absolutely necessary as well. And it said, it was a total contradiction to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. Total contradiction. Why? Because a focus was, was there in James. It's talk, talking about faith and works, and it was contrasting that. And by the way, they used this very same verse of Scripture I'm preaching on this morning to prove their points that there needed to be works involved with salvation. That was their context. That was the message. And the lady who gave me that asked me if I would write down some comments, and I did. I wrote down about a half dozen verses of Scripture that uh, was really trying to explain where our salvation comes through, comes from in Christ Jesus. This has nothing whatsoever to do with that. And a matter of fact, if you look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, which is the follow-on to these things, it says this. It says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. The purpose of our salvation which comes from grace through faith. And by the way, the faith is not is a gift of God. It's not of ourselves. He gives us the faith to believe. Nothing comes from us. 
But what we have been created for when we are born again of the Spirit of God is for good works. Part of that good works is working out our salvation with fear and trembling. That is, and we're going to explain that in a little greater detail, but it is necessary for us to understand it. There is an effort that we must make not to save ourselves. We cannot do that. It's impossible. Matter of fact, that's a heresy. But the fact is, God's expecting us to do something with what he's done by his saving grace. Let's look at another verse of scripture. Or let, let me talk, let's look at another, another uh, perspective on this. A couple of weeks ago, I went to a workshop, and one of the speakers there was a fellow by the name of Eric Simpson, who is a pastor at Eagle Church in uh, Indianapolis, I believe it is. And he said this. He said, we don't drift into knowing God deeply. It takes intentionality and effort. And that was a good thing to say, because it's true. What he gave as an analogy to explain that, he said, I like to canoe. And he said, there's nothing I like to enjoy quite better than getting in a canoe and just doing canoeing in the river or in the lake. And he said, what's necessary when you get in a canoe is you have to put your oars in the water. He said, if you just got in a canoe and sat there, he said, you're going to drift. You're just going to drift. And what he's saying here is that we don't drift into knowing God intentionally. It doesn't happen. It doesn't happen by accident. It doesn't happen by osmosis. I wish there was some kind of inoculation that God could give us that would fill us full of the knowledge of his word. But there's not. it requires us to make an effort. And this is what working out your salvation with fear and trembling is all about. It's an effort that we're required to make if we are to know him, if we are truly to know him. Think about getting to know someone that you don't know. What's required? There really is a requirement, if you're really, if you're really accurate about it, for face-to-face communication. How can you really get to know someone unless you sit down and talk to them face-to-face? That's the way you become intimate with a person. You have an intimate knowledge and love and respect for them by the face-to-face contact. It also requires maybe communication on their behalf and yours. You have to listen to them. And they need to listen to you. And that's the way you begin to know them. It requires maybe even correspondence. God has corresponded with us through the Word. He has spoken to us through the Word. He has in every way revealed Himself. All we need to do is listen. Therefore, it requires a conscious and deliberate effort. Let's just talk for a second about what Peter has to say to believers in 2 Peter 1, verses 5 through 9. And this, let me just emphasize verse 5. He says this, Now for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith supply moral excellence. And in your moral excellence, knowledge, and so on. But what is he saying here? Applying all diligence. That's an interesting word. And diligence, to me, means not only making an effort, but making an extraordinary effort. Making a very conscious, qualitative, extraordinary effort to do something, and to understand something, or to be something, 
are to apply something. And that's what we're talking about here. Do you know the living God? Do you know Jesus Christ, his son? The only way you're going to do it is by application of your salvation. That's the way. Seeking him, knowing him in every way. Also, consider Matthew 11, verses 20 through 30. It It says this, and this is Jesus speaking to us. And he's saying these words in Matthew chapter 11. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in spirit, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Come to me. And that requires something on our behalf, does it not, to respond to God? Come to me. And what is this promise? Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. How do you learn from God? How do you take his yoke upon you? Which, by the way, is not burdensome. His yoke fits perfectly. It is in every way custom tailored for you and me. And it is light, as is his burden. But God has asked us through Christ Jesus to learn from him. What does that really mean? We do, we find comfort and, and consolation for our souls. The next slide I want to I read to you. Eric Simpson put this down, and I thought it was very interesting. This is a quote from Mark Buchanan, who's a pastor and author out of uh, Vancouver, B.C., in Canada, and he says this. There is a key confusion in modern Christianity that greatly hinders us. We are overly prone to see legalism lurking behind every exhortation to strive and make an effort to be holy. Every time I say, work out your salvation, someone will hear me say, work for your salvation. The two are utterly different things. But our confusion stems from a theological distinction we make that is simply not biblical. We contrast grace with effort. We say, I live under grace. I don't need to strive. I don't need to make an effort. I reject all legalistic entrapment and rigmarole, that monkish rubbish. But grace and effort are not opposites. Grace and earning are opposites. Working out your salvation Uh, Working for your salvation is heresy. Working out your salvation is basic Bible. Grace and effort are allies. An interesting perspective. Because that's exactly the kind of trap we fall into. We say, I'm under grace. That sounds too legalistic to me. If I'm to do this, this, and this, then there's just no way I can do it. So therefore, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do anything. What we do is we hide behind that grace, and then we become passive, and we do nothing. And God's not asking us to be passive. I think he's asking us, as I read the whole of the scripture, to bear much fruit for him. And by the way, it takes an effort. And it's admitting to him and seeking him and abiding in him to bear much fruit, to learn from him. And that's an interesting perspective. 
Let's talk about the mindset of the effort in which we must do this. Because it takes an attitude, and it is simply this. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And we're talking about not the fear that makes us shrink back. Not the fear that grips our hearts and makes us powerless. We're talking about the fear of worshiping and living and knowing the living God. That's a fear, an awesome presence, and having awe of that presence. And doing it with an attitude of great humility when we stand before the living God. Think of this. Through Jesus Christ, our great high priest, it has been made possible for us to enter the very holy of holies, whereby at one time only the high priest could do it, and then only once a year to make sacrifice for the nation. And if someone else did it, that wasn't the high priest. His life was in jeopardy. But Christ rent the veil. At the crucifixion, the veil was torn in the Holy of Holies from top to bottom by the hand of God. And now we're able to enter that Holy of Holies in the presence of the living God and to know him. Who seemed to be, in a way, unknowable. But as you read the Old Testament, you know that's not true. Moses knew him. David knew him. Just as a couple of examples. So we're exhorted to come to him with an attitude of fear and trembling so that we understand it is his work in us. Let's talk about the final goal of our effort because that's found in the following chapter. In chapter 3, verses 12 and 14, he says this, Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which I also was laid hold of by Jesus Christ. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I press on. Forgetting what's behind, looking forward, reaching forward to what is ahead, I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. What does that mean? What is the prize for which we are seeking? I'm going to contend to you that the prize you'll find on the next slide here is the upward call of God in Christ Jesus that's exemplified for instance, it says in verse 8, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. What a prize. Paul said, I count all things but lost, but rubbish in comparison to knowing Christ. He says in verse 10, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, knowing Christ in this way. There is no greater goal, nor higher prize, nor greater blessing than to intimately know Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. So how do we get there? How do we know Jesus Christ? Since God reveals himself in a book, knowing him more intimately is going to involve bookwork. That's not a very flattering thing to say, or it's not a very 
perhaps, um, maybe it's a little too simplistic, but I tell you what, it really makes sense. If we're going to know the God of the Bible, then it's going to require some bookwork. As I said before, it doesn't happen by osmosis. God doesn't give us some kind of inoculation and then suddenly we know all about him. You know, one of the great things that I have appreciated about Paul's preaching in the last few months is this, is the foundational truths that are found in those first three chapters of Genesis. The foundation of doctrines that are so awesome. As I had committed myself to memorize that first chapter of Ephesians, and you begin to understand the great doctrinal truths that Paul had given to the church through that awesome letter. What a fantastic thing it is to consider what our privileges are in Jesus Christ, our Lord. That we are his inheritance, God's inheritance through Christ. Our, we've been adopted through the, through the call of God, made a, making us sons, privileged sons, if you will. What an awesome thing it is to consider And so, therefore, knowing Jesus Christ is going to require a commitment on our behalf to begin to search the Scriptures and to know the God of the Bible. There's another thing required. But before I get there, I want to just give this quote to you. This was from uh, a Welsh preacher by the name of Jeffrey Thomas, who is the pastor and been a pastor for 40 years at uh, the Alfred Place Baptist Church in Wales. He says this, Do not expect to master the Bible in a day or a month or a year. Rather, expect often to be puzzled by its contents. Great men of God often feel like novices when they read the Word. Let the Word break over your heart and mind again and again as the years go by, and imperceptibly there will be some great changes in your attitude and outlook and conduct. Often, you will feel very, very small because increasingly the God of the Bible would become so wonderfully great. So go on reading until you can read no longer. And then you will not need the Bible any longer because when your eyes close for the last time in death and never again read the Word of God in Scripture, you will open them to the Word of God in the flesh. That same Jesus whom you have known for so long is standing before you to take you forever to his eternal home. What an awesome thing to think about. That's knowing him. But there's one other thing I, I want to say that's required for us. And we talked about getting to know someone. And in order to get to know someone, as I said, communication's required. You need to talk with them face to face. And prayer is that same thing. Prayer is a learned behavior. This is one thing that Eric Simpson was talking about that, at that workshop I attended a couple of weeks ago. Prayer's a learned behavior. And look at that verse of Scripture in Luke 11.1. 1. It says this. It happened that, on, that while Jesus was praying, on a certain, uh, praying in a certain place, after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John also taught his disciples. Isn't that a, that's something that we need to understand. We need to learn to pray. And so it says you can, and this was another quote by a fellow by the name of Ben Peterson, you can choose the discomfort of the discipline of praying when you don't feel like it, or the desolation and terminal fatigue of life without prayer. 
Sometimes it's hard. Sometimes it's not comfortable. And sometimes it's very difficult. John Owens, who was a great Puritan theologian, said in the 17th century, he said, I give myself to assiduous meditation on the scriptures and prayer, characterized by frequent visits with the Savior. I mean, that's devotion. He said, I give myself to assiduous or diligent meditation on the scriptures and prayer characterized by frequent visits with the Savior. That's the kind of thing that's available to us if we choose to avail ourselves of it, if we make the effort to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. There is a school of prayer here at the Alliance Bible Church of McHenry. It takes place every Wednesday night at 7 o'clock. And I can only say, I can encourage you, that by any ways that you can, to be here and learn to pray, even as John the Baptist taught his disciples, and as the disciples of Jesus Christ said, teach us to pray, Lord. Teach us to pray. Prayer is a learned behavior. It, again, doesn't happen by osmosis. You don't suddenly begin praying when you never prayed before. It takes an effort, step by step, to come before God. And that's corporate prayer I'm talking about that takes place here on Wednesday evenings. Your private prayer should take place, a, a way of praying to Him day by day, moment by moment, as God's Holy Spirit leads you. But that's something that we need to understand to do. I want to challenge you in three ways this morning. If you're hiding behind grace saying, I want no part of this making up an effort. If you're hiding behind that grace, being passive, I want you to know that it's a sin when we choose to be unproductive and unfruitful for Jesus Christ. It's just a sin, pure and simple. He didn't put us here. What did he do in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10? We are created for good works that he ordained before that we should walk in them. So therefore, God is calling us to work out our salvation, knowing that it is Him, it's God in, inside of us, by the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, who is helping us want to do this, and giving us the power by which we need to do it. It's God at work in you to will and to work for His good pleasure. It is His will that you know Him intimately, that you understand the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ, our Lord. It is His will. We need to apply these glorious truths in all aspects of our lives if Christ is going to be glorified in us. This is why He said, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Make the effort to apply the glorious truths of your salvation in Jesus Christ to every aspect and phase of your life. It has nothing to do with earning salvation. Because remember, he's talking to those who are already believers and saints in the Lord. And lastly this, make every effort to heed the promptings of his Holy Spirit, knowing that it is God who's working in us to will and to work for that reason, for his good pleasure. It pleases God that we are productive and fruitful and obedient and abiding. It is pleasing to God. 
If you have been saved by him, if he is the Lord of your life, are you not willing to please him and to obey him and to walk in a manner worthy of your calling? That's what God is calling us to do. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for the glorious truth of your word, which is eternal. Heaven and earth will pass away, but your word will never pass away. And God, we thank you that you have spoken to us according to that word, the word of truth in Christ Jesus. God, give us understanding. Open up our eyes. Show us our shortcomings, Father. Show us where we have failed to do the things you've called us to do, to will it to work for your good pleasure. Father, we thank you that we can please you out of the fact that we obey you and walk according to the Spirit. So, Father, show us how. Speak to our hearts accordingly, so that Christ is glorified in us. We ask it in his precious name. Amen.